You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's August 14th. We're going to start the show today with some news from RAND. This week, we announced the creation of the new RAND Center to Advance Racial Equity Policy. This new research center is launching against the backdrop of a pandemic that's inflicting disproportionate pain on communities of color and an overdue reckoning with America's long history of systemic inequity and structural racism. Rand's Anita Chandra, vice president of our Social and Economic Well-Being Research Division, describes why this commitment is so important. Quote, We must examine where inequities intersect across systems and groups, represent voices that are too often left out of leadership on these topics, and integrate the structural context in which policies have been developed and applied, sometimes with unintended consequences. We look forward to discussing the research and analysis from this new center on future episodes of the podcast. Until then, you can read the full announcement about the RAND Center to Advance Racial Equity Policy on RAND.org. Los Angeles and its neighboring counties are among the areas hardest hit by the COVID-19 recession. In June, the unemployment rate in the Los Angeles-Long Beach-Anaheim metro area was 18.1% the highest in the country. But Rand's Jason Ward says that this shockingly high unemployment rate only tells part of the story. For the poor and some racial and ethnic groups, the jobs picture is far worse. What accounts for these differences? Well, for starters, the Los Angeles region had among the worst income inequality in the nation even before the pandemic began. And after COVID-19 hit, the income gap was magnified. The L.A. area also has a tremendously diverse population, which is combined with high levels of occupational segregation by race and ethnicity. For example, there are many Asian residents in L.A. who work in service industries, as personal and home care aides, waiters and waitresses, and cashiers. As the pandemic took hold, The loss of these jobs led to a rapid increase in unemployment among the area's Asian population. And as bad as things appear to be for L.A.'s low-income residents and for people of color, the situation may be even more dire if you consider informal jobs, like those in the garment industry, agriculture, and construction, which represent an estimated 15% of total employment in Los Angeles County. Changes to these types of jobs which aren't taxed or registered in government data, are not accurately tracked or measured. Unfortunately, says Ward, the only near-term certainty appears to be that, quote, effectively containing the spread of COVID-19, which is essential for economic recovery to take hold, remains out of our grasp. China could be among the countries that first produces a successful vaccine for COVID-19. If this happens, there are important issues to consider, says Rand's Jennifer Bowie. First, although China is responsible for about 20% of global vaccine production, it mostly targets the domestic market. And for a vaccine to reach the global market, additional regulatory requirements must be met. 
These requirements, which are part of the World Health Organization's vaccine prequalification process, have often proven to be strenuous for the small local manufacturers that dominate the Chinese pharmaceutical sector. In fact, only a handful of vaccines made in China have completed the process. But Bui says that COVID-19 may prove to be a game changer in providing an incentive for the Chinese government and vaccine manufacturers to scale up the motivation and capacity to make it to the global market. There's also a second hurdle, what Bui calls a regulatory divide. This refers to the idea that different countries have different uniform regulations for pharmaceutical products. Most developing countries, such as India and China, use one system. And other countries, including the United States, European Union countries, and Japan, have their own set of regulations. This means that a Chinese vaccine, even if it is available on the global market, would be unlikely to come to the United States, Europe, or Japan. That's unless significant regulatory exceptions were granted in response to the pandemic. How might U.S. military leadership change to better serve national security objectives? A new RAND report looks to help answer this question by analyzing the professional experiences and shared characteristics of general and flag officers in the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps. The findings revealed some commonalities. For example, there's a tendency for ducks to pick ducks, as the authors put it, meaning that promotion boards across all the services tend to select officers whose career experiences are comparable to their own. Another shared characteristic among all the services, personnel systems discourage risk-taking in career management choices and in professional performance. The authors also found that each service's approach to personnel management differs in some key ways. To help depict this, they constructed four leadership archetypes. The Army's primary general officer pathways tend to be tactically focused, command-centric, doctrine-based, and influenced by an officer's reputation among Army senior leaders. The Navy's career development processes tend to emphasize self-reliance, technical expertise, Darwinian competition, and, for the surface and submarine communities, especially, command at sea. The Air Force's personnel management processes feature early identification of talent, compressed timelines for advancement, and greater importance placed on education and cooperation across services. And finally, the Marine Corps' officer development process is highly prescriptive and performance-based and common experiences serve to reinforce the Marine Corps' egalitarian culture and create a largely cohesive core of general officers. Despite the popular ethical and sustainable eating trends like Veganuary and Meat-Free Monday, most people in the UK still don't eat a healthy diet. A new study from RAND Europe found that people in the UK are generally struggling to meet their five-a-day fruit and vegetable consumption goal. And although people are eating less salt, sugar, and red and processed meat, they are still eating too much meat overall, and not enough fruit, vegetables, and fiber. The study also looked at the way people buy food. UK residents are increasingly shopping for food online and using food delivery services such as vegetable boxes and meal kits. 
And with the expansion of platforms like Uber Eats, eating food from outside the home is becoming more and more common. But this trend has negative implications because the food that people order from restaurants tend to be less healthy than what they might cook at home. There are many things that are driving these consumer behaviors, from the cost and availability of food to marketing that affects people's choices to differences in socioeconomic status. And according to the study's lead author, Camilla D'Angelo, changing people's minds and actions about food will require a whole systems approach. This means using soft policies, like awareness campaigns that promote better individual choices, but also stronger policies, such as changes to the cost and content of food, a sugar tax, for example, which can encourage collective change. D'Angelo says that investing in a broader spectrum of policy options that are supported by good real-world evidence is likely to be key in helping people make healthier, ethical, and sustainable choices. Last month, hackers hijacked dozens of high-profile Twitter accounts, including those belonging to presidential candidate Joe Biden and former President Obama. The attack appears to have been achieved through an elaborate combination of social engineering and spear phishing that targeted specific Twitter employees. And according to RAND experts, these tactics show how vulnerabilities at tech platforms can also pose a risk to national security. For example, a fake tweet from a world leader's account could crash markets, spark conflicts, or create other catastrophic global consequences. And hacking the accounts of media companies could create similarly far-reaching effects. Imagine a well-respected news outlet tweeting out breaking news of impending war. Such worst-case scenarios demonstrate why social media companies may want to consider taking action to reduce the risk of insider threats. Our experts provide a few recommendations. First, social media platforms could reconsider broad staff access to data and could take steps to compartmentalize data access. Second, if they don't do so already, Twitter and other platforms should also continuously monitor staff and systems for evidence of attempts to breach their defenses. This could include a mixture of automated and manual review of chat conversations, emails, and other transactions on its systems. And third, intelligence about potential insider threats should be shared inside and outside the organization. This could include engaging other corporate functions like human resources and security, government partners, and possibly even the broader public as allies. Given the stakes of these attacks, it's important that Twitter and other social media companies remain vigilant in guarding against insider threats. After all, it won't just be themselves they're protecting. It's all of us. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. See you next week. <laughs>